What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Baseball Connection. So I want to talk about a player who kind of, I don't want to say he paved the way, but he was a bit of a, um, a trendsetter in this regard, that he was one of the first players to really put his foot down and make a stance that he was going to play for money and that he was going to take nothing less than his market value. And he kind of caused a lot of resentment among fans, and this kind of made fans for the teams he played for a bit salty about him and he ended up being kind of underrated when you look back at his career because people never really appreciate how how good he was and this is JD Drew some of you might remember JD Drew uh you know he played for a couple different ball clubs St. Louis Atlanta the Dodgers and then he ended with the Red Sox he was a one-time All-Star, but if you look at his resume, I mean, I mean, he actually put up some pretty impressive career numbers that that rank him up there, you know, amongst some pretty solid names. I mean, we're talking about a guy with a career OPS of 873. He had 242 career home runs of 44.9 WAR, and JD Drew had a pretty solid career, but it started with a bit of a a controversial negotiation or actually multiple controversial negotiations for getting him signed out of college. So I'll just give you a bit of a backstory. Uh, you know, JD drew was one of the best college baseball players of all time. He was at Florida state, uh, two time all American and the 1997 winner of the golden spikes award. That's the award that's given to the best amateur player in the country. That 1997 season that he had in you know, at Florida State in college was insane. I mean, just listen, listening to his numbers, 455, 31 homers, 100 RBIs, a 604 on base percentage, a 961 slugging percentage, and 32 steals. He was college baseball's first 30-30 player, and he did this in 67 games. So, yeah, it, it was really no surprise that he was the best collegiate prospect heading into the draft. I mean, a sweet lefty swing. And all the talent on the planet. I mean, this guy was going to go number one overall. Absolutely. So he hired Scott Boris as his agent. You know, Scott Boris, as we know today, is, you know, the guy who represents a lot of these big name guys. And he's known for getting them a lot of money. That's just what he does. And he he has a firm stance. So this J.D. Drew case was kind of is a case study. It's a very good example of Scott Boris. So basically what happened was 1997 was, you know, J.D. Drew supposed to be getting drafted. It was a draft-eligible year. But this is a day and age before they had, like, the slot money for the drafts. So, uh, basically, you would just have to negotiate with the player and try to come up with a reasonable amount of money. There wasn't, like, that slot bonus uh, that you were supposed to sign them for Then you pay penalties for going over it, like we have today. So, basically... What Scott Boris did is that he made it clear to all teams that anyone who drafted J.D. Drew would have to pay the market rate. So he was specifically looking for $10 million for J.D. Drew. And that's what someone named Travis Lee had gotten from the Diamondbacks the year before after Scott Boris discovered a loophole in the draft that made a bunch of amateur prospects free agents. So basically the loophole was that Basically, back then, it was you had to offer a new draftee a contract within 15 days 
after the draft was over or else he would become a free agent. And a lot of teams didn't know that and they didn't do it. And Scott Boris found that loophole and uh, he was able to get make guys free agents. And what happens, the reason why your price goes up when you're a free agent is because any team can sign you. And once any team can sign you, then it becomes a bidding war and then your price goes up. It's different than when only one team can negotiate with you, then they, they're not going to bid against themselves. That's why the price stays down. That's how draft prospects end up you know, signing for less money than, you know, international free agents and things like that. So basically, that's that's what happened. He said, I want $10 million for J.D. Drew. Um, it's, it's That's that's what we want. And the Phillies were like, well, so what happened was the Tigers had the first pick. The Phillies had a second pick. The Tigers said, no, we're, we're not going to come anywhere near that. We're not going to pick him. So they took right-hander Matt Anderson out of Rice, signed him for $2.5 million. That was a quarter of J.D. Drew's asking price. Then the Phillies drafted J.D. Drew number two overall. They were undeterred, and they assumed that J.D. Drew would ultimately have no choice to sign with them because they were going to offer him a contract within 15 days, and you know he would only have that one offer. So they offered him $3 million, and uh, J.D. Drew said no. He and Boris are like, no, um, we want more. And the Phillies are like, well, what are you going to do? And J.D. Drew and Scott Boris said, well, we're going to go play independent ball. They signed with an independent team. So what <laughs> what Scott Boris was trying to do was he was trying to buy time because the rule at the time was if you are not playing professionally, let's say you get drafted and you do not play for any professional team, you become a free agent one week before the following year's draft. And at the time, indie ball, independent ball, was not classified as pro ball. Pro ball was basically classified as the major leagues or the minor leagues. Independent ball, all these other random leagues didn't count as professional at the time. So that was what Scott Boris was trying to do. That was his strategy. I'll send him to the St. Paul Saints in independent ball. And then a week before the 1998 draft, the following year, he'll become a free agent. And then he'll be able to be signed for you know the $10 million we're looking for. So that's what he did. He signed with the St. Paul Saints just three months after the 97 draft. And um, he told the Phillies, like, yeah, I'm not going to play for you guys. I don't want to end up playing in Phillies uniform at half my market value, um, blah, blah, blah. They're not paying me enough money. So he went to go play for the Saints, who were an unaffiliated team. And he he played well. He destroyed the independent league. He had 341 with a 433 on base and a 706 slugging in 43 games. So he was waiting for the following year where he would become a free agent. But while they were waiting, Major League Baseball saw all this and they closed the loophole where they made it clear that the St. Paul Saints and independent ball count as pro ball. So long story short, J.D. Drew would not be able to be considered a free agent in 1998 and he'd have to go through the draft again. Scott Boris and J.D. Drew were extremely angry about this, but you know they had nothing, you know, nothing to do at that point. They had no recourse. At that point, they had to just wait and, you know, go to the draft again. So then comes the 98 draft and, uh, you know, the Cardinals had the fifth pick. So, you know, a few teams pass on J.D. Drew because of the contract demands and everything. Cardinals pick him with the fifth pick in the 1998 draft. And this time they were able to get him signed. They were, um, I mean, the Cardinals were able to get J.D. Drew signed. After negotiation, Drew and Boris end up setting, settling for $7 million instead of 10 But what helped in this case was that the Cardinals had actually just dealt with Scott Boris a year before with 
another top client, Rick Ankiel, who was a second round pick in '97. So they they knew how how Boris operated and negotiated. So they're willing to you know basically negotiate. They settled at seven million dollars. So once this happened, Jay Drew became a cardinal, and the uproar in Philadelphia was huge. You know, like I said, this was a time when players weren't as supported as they are today when it comes to you know getting that money, getting that bag, all that. So uh, a lot of sports writers were basically they're basically calling Scott Boris, you know, the sports world's top ranked terrorist. They're saying, oh, Phillies fans should have a boo JD Drew night whenever the Cardinals came to town, things like that. He was basically public enemy number one. Well, JD Drew would make his big league debut later that year, and the Cardinals manager, Tony LaRusso, was actually really concerned about the pressure on him. So he picked a night for JD Drew's debut so that no one would be paying attention. So he chose the night that Mark McGuire was going for. And actually hit his 62nd homer against Sammy Sosa and the Chicago Cubs. Drew went over two. He pinch hit, hit, went over two. No one really noticed, and uh, you know he broke into the big leagues quietly that way. But he tore it up after that. He ended up hitting 417 with five homers in 14 games for the Cardinals down the stretch. So that set expectations for his 1999 season sky high, actually way too high. And uh, you know it turned out it was too high because JD Drew. Ended up struggling with injuries. He only played 104 games. He hit 242. But then, you know, things things started to look up. Things started to look up. He got better. And this dude actually turned into a very good player. I mean, you're talking like in 2000, he was a regular. And then 2001, Albert Pujols came along and kind of stole the spotlight in St. Louis. And J.D. Drew was a guy who kind of always played better when he was, you know, working in the background, when he was not having so much attention on him. So Pujols put together that historic season to kick off his Hall of Fame career in 01. And then J.D. Drew in the background just hit 323, 414 on base, 613 slugging, you know, and that was a really good year. So he just continued to play well. And then, you know, LaRusa wasn't always that happy with J.D. Drew because he felt like J.D. Drew kind of skated by on just like 75% of his talent. That's what he said in his book. But he was still a great player. J.D. Drew actually ended up getting traded to the Braves from the Cardinals after the 03 season. And then in 04, he actually had the best year of his career. You know, that was with the Braves. He had 305 with 31 bombs and a 436 on base percentage, just in time to hit free agency. Isn't it always funny how they do that right in their in their contract year? So as a free agent, he signed a five-year, $55 million deal with the Dodgers. But then he opted out after two years because he wanted more money. So that led to more bad feelings in L.A. because those fans thought he was going to stay. And, you know, the organization thought he was going to stay. But, you know, J.D. Drew was going to chase that bag. So after leaving the Dodgers, he ends up signing a deal with the Red Sox. Five years, $70 million. And, you know, that's where he played the rest of his career. You know, he had some big moments with the Red Sox. He had a grand slam in game six of the 07 ALCS. That helped lead the Red Sox to a World Series. They would win. And he was excellent for the Red Sox when he was healthy. I mean, he made his first and only All-Star game in 08. He actually homered in the All-Star game. But as usual, he, he kind of couldn't stay healthy. And then when his deal ran out in 2011, he retired at the age of 35. But all in all, J.D. Drew had a had an excellent career. I mean, a career OPS of 873, like I said, that's higher than Cal Ripken's. And, uh, you know, one of the top 300 home run hitters of all time. He could feel, he could run, and a gorgeous lefty swing. Short, compact swing. His career wore... 44.9. That puts him ahead of Matt Holiday, Carlos Delgado, Daryl Strawberry, just to name a few. 
teams were never worse for having JD Drew on them. He just, you know, he just drew a lot of animosity because he was a guy who was known right from the get-go, right out of college, that he was going to chase the money. I mean, if, if something like that happened today, you know, you're not going to see as much hate because there's a lot more support for players maximizing their income and taking control of their careers. But back then, it wasn't it wasn't like that. So that is um, that, that's that's something I want to share. It's it's interesting actually. Now that I mention it, I think I'll probably do another episode on a similar. There's a similar player who had. There are actually a couple a couple players who have done something like this in recent years, and um, I am actually I'm going to do that coming up so stay tuned there there are other players i want to talk about um yeah hint hint it it has to do with the houston astros houston astros for sure but that's going to do it for today if you enjoyed this please share with someone who'd be interested and we'll see you next time on baseball connection